Hello, and thank you for listening to the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. My name is Lauren Cochran, a PhD student at the University of Exeter and alumni of the University of Dundee. Today I'm talking to Siobhan Amelia-Smith, a PhD student at the European University Institute in Italy. Hi Siobhan, thanks for agreeing to participate in the podcast and agreeing to share your research with us. Could you introduce yourself for our audience? Yes, thank you, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me. I'm grateful to be included in this podcast and to be able to discuss my research with you. Um, so yeah, my name is Siobhan Smith. I'm a second year PhD researcher in history at the European University Institute in Florence. I'm not a historian by training and before moving to Italy, I completed my master's in international relations in Leiden University. And then before that, I did a bachelor's in politics at Newcastle University. But it's really interesting because my interests are international political history, so kind of merges together in my current PhD topic. So that topic is looking at the role of the United Nations during um, Rhodesian Zimbabwean decolonization. And for now, it starts in the early 60s to so roughly 1980, but this could still change. <laughs> and broadly, then, my interests are, like I mentioned, international political histories of decolonization and also international organisations, so such as the UN and also the Commonwealth, and how the roles and perceptions of these organisations have changed over time. So now that we know a little bit more about you, could you provide a summary of your project? So my project is, as I've already mentioned, an international political history of Southern Rhodesian decolonisation. So I've mentioned Southern Rhodesia, Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, and just to provide a bit of context then, um, Southern Rhodesia was a British colony from the late 1800s, but since 1923, the government in power then had autonomy over a lot of its domestic affairs. And so what my project is exploring is the contested claims for independence between the white minority government that was in power that wanted to create a Rhodesian state, and then also the various Zimbabwean nationalist parties who wanted a Zimbabwean state based on majority rule and representative government. So my focus is on the UN as both a meeting point for these actors, as well as an array of other international actors, and potentially introducing the UN as a political actor within this history. So looking at what the UN Secretariat does and how the UN bureaucrats potentially play a role or not. So yeah, uh, my project begins really in 1961, where I begin tracing discussions about Southern Rhodesia status as a colony. So since 1923, the Southern Rhodesian government have been termed a responsible government. So they argue at the UN that because it's controlled the territory since 1923, it's therefore self-governing. Britain also claims this, but at this point in the early 1960s, it argues that it doesn't want the UN involved, that the UN has no capacity to be involved. And this is really reflected and supported by uh, most Western members of the UN, and this is reflected in resolutions and voting patterns. But then you have Zimbabwean, the Zimbabwean parties and new post-colonial UN members that actually argue the opposite, that they argue that the, the government was unrepresentative and the majority of the population have never had the possibility to govern or be involved in governing. So therefore it is non-self-governing. So this is the kind of the debates that set up the earlier stages. And yeah, so I start in around about early 1960s, but it's not the first time this debate has been brought up. One of the really interesting moments, which I have briefly looked at, but I need to go into a lot more detail and, and read it a lot more, 
um, happened in 1953 when actually the Central African Federation is created, which brings together Southern Rhodesia with Northern Rhodesia and Nyasaland into like a loose federation. And this is brought up into the fourth committee of the UN, which um, at the time dealt with political, uh, I think it's special political and decolonization committee. And this is a really interesting moment because it's brought to the UN in a letter by a Anglican priest. His name is Reverend Michael Scott. And he's very well known in historiography on the UN and decolonization because he uses his platform and, and his link to the UN to advocate for the end of colonial rule in Southern Africa. And so he argues in 1953 that this federation was actually against the wishes of the population. So this moment really shows uh, a different atmosphere at the UN uh, because this call for the rejection of the federation is ultimately rejected. And this is really because in this earlier stage that we don't have as many post-colonial countries that are pushing agendas on decolonization. You see countries such as India and Egypt pushing for a view of the situation, but ultimately they're outnumbered by Western countries who don't, don't really want the UN engaged in these questions. And so then during the late 1950s and, and early 60s, problems then arise with this federation and there becomes uh, negotiations between the Rhodesian or the Southern Rhodesian government and the British government. And in 1962, in, in December 1962, a new party is created in the parliament called the Rhodesian Front. And they are voted to quote, ensure the permanent establishment of the European population and, if necessary, take independence unilaterally. So negotiations break down and then this is where the moment that most people know about where Rhodesia comes into people's awareness is then on the, in November 1965, the Southern Rhodesian Prime Minister Ian Smith declared Rhodesia's unilateral declaration of independence, otherwise known as UDI. Yeah, this is commonly known as the Rhodesian crisis in British colonial history, but my project really seeks to argue that actually it was an international crisis and that we could even say it was a crisis of decolonization at the UN. And it's really interestingly how the UN General Assembly votes pretty unanimously to reject the regime and the Security Council does the same. And then after this moment, the issue moves back to the General Assembly, to the Fourth Committee, to all of these different spaces in the UN. And I became interested in understanding how they moved and the debates and the decisions that were taken in these spaces. That's really interesting. So your projects obviously got to contend with all these different moving parts. So you've got British government in London and then you've got white minority government in Rhodesia and then you've got the UN and then you've got the Zimbabwean aspect and then on top of that all of the other participants in the UN that's mm -hmm. quite a quite a big thing to have to piece together so I admire your <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think uh yeah this is something I get all the time and then this is where I'm only in my second year and I'm still very positive and uh, optimistic about all of these things I can do so um I, I think it's likely to change when I have uh, when I focus a bit more on the writing aspect and kind of the logistics of getting it all in into a four-year program. You mentioned that your, your academic background wasn't necessarily in history. So could you expand on why you chose this project and what were your motivations in coming into it from that angle? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that surprise, still surprises me now when I look at how I got here is 
that actually it was only until I moved to the Netherlands that I really got an understanding of British colonial history, which I know is not completely unique and completely shocking. But from here, then it kind of really, my my interest became really intense. And I, um, I also had the opportunity of studying the UN, the history of the UN in my international relations seminars. And here as well, we also had a lot of discussion about whether the UN was an imperial uh, organisation or how it kind of rejected and well, it didn't include a lot of, of colonial states at the time of its creation. So this was kind of the debates that I was pushed into in into my master's. And I think that was kind of like, yeah, an intense, stimulating environment that uh, made me ask well, I had a lot more questions than answers. So that's something that I love about doing a PhD project is that it's it's really okay to have questions that you don't have answers to yet. And that's kind of the whole point, right? And so, yeah, so during my master's as well, my main project was looking at the activist role of African Commonwealth members during the Rhodesian crisis. But I specifically focused on the 1960s. And what I find pretty interesting is still in discussions about the Commonwealth today, I mean, it was the... Um, Similar a few months ago, it's, I remember watching it on TV, discussions about the Commonwealth always included the word the British Commonwealth. And it's just really funny to me how in 2022 we're still talking about the Commonwealth as a British Commonwealth. So my research there was also interested in kind of getting rid of that British element, because looking at the Rhodesian crisis, I really see how actually the African members of the Commonwealth were pushing it into different directions that actually have impacted how the Commonwealth acts today I mean that was really interesting to me and so that's how I got into kind of the international organizations aspects and how at this point it was mainly focused on states and so then I also learned that after a month a month after UDI in December 1965 the same or some of the same African uh, delegates that were part of the UN staged a walkout during the British Prime Minister Harold Wilson's speech at the General Assembly and basically that this was just to show, to symbolically show their protest with the half-hearted approach of the British government. And this again really fascinated me and kind of led me then to ask, well, what are the moments at the UN were where you could see these political action symbols? And then beyond that, like what, what were different members in the UN trying to do and how the UN became involved or interested or not? I think that's a really important way of looking at it. I think there's definitely a growing understanding of the role of the UN in these situations rather than just kind of mm. the traditional idea of Britain deciding to decolonize or, you know, being mm. kind of pressured by indeterminate international factors. Could you summarize the main arguments of your project? For now, I mean, I have one or two for now, right? ones that I'm pretty sure about. So firstly, I would say that I'm quite lucky in the sense that there's not really been any specific uh, linkage between the UN and Rhodesia. There's been a couple of articles, but they're usually maybe in the 70s or in the 90s, and they're not really talking about the, the UN as a whole. It's just very specific things. So um, one of the obvious things that I wanted to forward first was actually that southern Rhodesian decolonization was really important for the UN and it was incredibly contested it wasn't like a simple it wasn't a simple process right so um, it was on the UN's decolonization agenda for nearly 20 years it was the first issue on 
the agenda of the UN Committee of 17, which later became the Committee of 24, which began in 1961. And this was kind of mandated to speed up the process of decolonization. And it remained on the agenda until it became independent in 1980. So it might seem a little bit obvious, but um, histories of the UN don't often even mention Rhodesia or Zimbabwe decolonization at all. So for me, it was like there was this implicit suggestion that it wasn't important or it didn't matter. And so I kind of want to want to say that it was. But at the same time, it's really interesting in the context that these debates happen because you have the backdrop of a huge peacekeeping mission in the Congo where it creates financial burdens and also the psychological memory of this also kind of has an impact, which has been slightly written about, but I also want to to go into more detail about that about okay it was an important issue but could parties actually use the UN to act on it properly I'm not sure yet and then linked to the first one is also then how Rhodesian and Zimbabwean parties sought to use the UN to legitimize their claims of independence although obviously with varying degrees of success so before UDI Rhodesian officials petitioned to be included in UN discussions they traveled to New York they met and discussed what they wanted as their future state with UN state delegates and UN representatives in the capital of Salisbury and also in New York. So there seems to be a perception that that they were always outcasts and that they weren't ever bothered about what the UN had to say. And this changes with the Rhodesian Front in their election. But I would say that the earlier government, which was headed by um, Whitehead, they were actually really interested in engaging with the UN and putting their case forward, which um, was still seen as inadequate by a lot of other international actors, because they were saying, you know, we will allow majority rule in 10, 15 years, but not now, whereas the debate had moved from no now. So looking at the UN, it shows the Rhodesian aspect in a different light, where they actually were interested in what the international community said up to a certain point. But then once UDI was declared um, it's really interesting because they still continue to ask the Security Council if they can be involved in discussions but actually the Secretary General Uthant he prevents this and he basically has to remind the council that these are this is an illegal regime and they should not be given any recognition and it's really interesting again it's symbolically but it shows who's allowed in and who's not and why and, and how the, that aligns with how the organisation has changed with, I say, like the rise of or with a, like a new dominant majority. And then for Zimbabwean parties is that their plea for majority rule really resonated with the two thirds majority of the so-called Global South members. And yeah, I, I, might, I have a feeling, but I need to work more on this, is that enthusiasm kind of diminishes as years go on. So What I've kind of seen in the late 1970s is that discussions about a UN force are put forward. And from what I've seen, this is not welcomed by Zimbabwean parties or they really want a restricted one. So these are my initial thoughts, but I'm really interested in tracing how it changes and why it changes and what other, uh, this also might be way too huge for my project, but the Commonwealth is important in this moment still. So what happens, do they prefer a Commonwealth and what other actors are, are more important, let's say, in this aspect. You mentioned earlier the idea of a a crisis of decolonization in the UN. Do you feel that this particular crisis in Rhodesia influenced other decolonization struggles in European empires at the time? Or do you think that it's particularly distinct? I think, I'm not sure about it inspiring other moments, but I'm, I'm very aware that the 
kind of uh, histories of decolonization that we know, sometimes the most obvious ones that we know are the ones that have written sources or have made it or are kind of these successful decolonizations in some way. So I'm very aware that there might be other ones that are not included or I'm unaware of. But um, it is distinctive in the way that I think uh, it really changes how we think of decolonization in terms of the Rhodesian white government taking their own decolonization. You don't see that, you don't really understand or think of it as decolonization benefiting white minorities. And so because they 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 successfully do that in a way that they are then a regime for 15 years where they do have their own decolonization, let's say, how they exist and are able to to hold that out for so long. I think that's what makes it really unique. At the same time, I think it should be talked about in the context of South African apartheid and Namibian independence and also Angola and Mozambique, because they're obviously in the same geographical region, but a lot of the issues are similar, right? So the idea of pushing for majority rule in Southern Rhodesia, okay, it's still technically a colony, but the same arguments are being made in South Africa, but the difference is they're shielded by domestic jurisdiction and they're already a, a UN member state. So that's also that something reflected in historiography, which kind of sets them apart. But again, I find that really interesting because you have these different layers of not just colonial histories, but also then how can a colony secede and then how do they become an international threat to peace and security? I just think is so fascinating. For me and my limited knowledge of kind of, of your, your periods, it always sticks out just how kind of fundamentally how it impacted the British government. It took up so much yeah. space in the kind of official psyche and it really was an enormous problem and a threat especially, yeah. as you say, with the kind of South African element to it as well. This is um, one of the things that actually also interested me is because I feel like in the UK we hear about apartheid a lot and it's kind of seen as like the, the anti-apartheid movement as like a success of the British story right, and the British involvement. But with Rhodesia, I don't think it's as simple as that. You mentioned that there hasn't been a specific linkage between Rhodesia and the UN and your desire to highlight the importance of the Rhodesian crisis. But could you detail what contributions your research has made to the wider scholarship and what knowledge gap your project has filled? Yeah. So I think to begin with, I want to contribute to a better understanding of what the UN is and how to define it and how also then political influence works during this time. So I think one of the, the obvious things for me is that sometimes historians talk about the UN, but they don't actually define what part of the UN they're talking about. And so I don't think this is quite useful or beneficial. And then I think we also do this in, in the news and in the media and in everyday conversations. So I'm constantly pushing back on what do you mean when you say the UN in this particular moment? Do you completely see it as a platform just for states or now for non-state actors? Or is it an organization of states? Can it be both? But how does the political institution part come into it? So this is something that I'm trying to do by looking at and tracing at how Southern Rhodesian decolonization moves between these different spaces. So, so now I'm looking at the different committee, well, the main committees in the General Assembly. So the fourth committee, which deals with this issue, and then the Security Council, but also I plan on looking at the Economic and Social Council and potentially the Human Rights Commission and the Secretariat. So again, it's still so broad. Maybe I'm being way too, too um, ambitious there, but but anyway, that's what I'm trying to do anyway, is to define the complexities of the UN system and draw out exactly where and who and what 
is happening in these different spaces. At the same time, I also want to contribute to the history of UN sanctions in a way that um, looks at the or gives greater attention to the political dynamics of them. So the literature on sanctions and Rhodesia at the minute currently focus on which it's great, like it opens my eyes to a lot of things. They look at like how it was imposed on Rhodesia and the perspective in that respect, and then also the impact, so the economic and financial impacts. So yeah, my interest is also to look at why, for example, after for four years, Britain argued that it wasn't any capacity, the UN had no capacity to act, why then it then supported UN sanctions. Um, so I want to know how did we get there, right? So who in the first place argued for UN wide sanctions? Why was it? there why was it on the table in the first place and then also UN sanctions become stronger in terms of it includes uh, more commodities such as oil and I know the UK didn't want this to begin with so I'm really interested in like why this then changes and how different interests push these ideas so just contributing to how we see sanctions or UN sanctions as a political instrument and whether that's like a right assessment to make um, and then finally I'm really interested in internationalizing the late colonial history of Zimbabwe. So you've already mentioned it before. I mean, this research hopefully will move beyond the perspective of just focusing on Britain grappling with this particular decolonization. And so, yeah, my by introducing the international elements, I really put these different ideologies and perspectives together in one to create like an international history rather than just a British colonial history or a history of Zimbabwean liberation movements and struggles. So it's kind of tries to put them all together and, and the UN really offers that space to, to do that. That's great. Um, I guess in that sense, your project is kind of fitting in with the the kind of movement towards like a global history and trying to see yeah. the, the the wider perspective, global yeah. reaching. I think that's great. Yeah, I, I think as well, um, I think I have just gone on about states, but I mean, one of the interesting things is also UN bureaucrats and how they see their role um, and also non-state actors. So I've already mentioned um, Michael Scott, but also NGOs, where do they fit into the story? So I'm really and corporations, right? So they're all, all involved. So I really need to, um, this is something that this hopefully the end of this year, uh, next year's project will be focusing on NGOs and, and business interests and where do they fit into the story? Because they do, um, but their influence is not as easy to see. And, and sometimes they're not in the UN official archives. So this is what I'm working towards too. As you just mentioned, the UN archives, could you talk a bit about your methodology and the types of sources that you're making use of? Yeah, so the um, thing about the UN and, and this type of institutional history, let's say, as well, is that we have official positions versus, un not unofficial, but maybe behind the scenes perspectives of, of member states. For example, when I look at um, official resolutions or uh, debates, the UK is, um, the delegate is saying one thing and then you go to the British archives and you see the papers and foreign office documents, you see that they actually really want another thing. So this is one thing that I try to do is I don't just use the UN official institutional documents and resolutions, but I also match it with archival research. So I went to the UN archives in New York last March, and which was great. And they, they have a very good platform in terms of they're starting to digitize a lot of stuff now. And so there was a lot there for me, but I also was able to see the perspectives of some UN bureaucrats. And that's really, you kind of then see the behind the scenes, unofficial 
aspects of the politics, let's say. And I've also then been able to go to the Bodleian Library in Oxford and the Borthwick Institute in York for some personal papers of UN bureaucrats. And also there's some traces of Zimbabwean nationalist parties there. So I'm planning on going to South Africa and Zimbabwe next year for a variety of different archives and to be able to see their newspapers and also Smith's papers and Zanuzapu papers. So there is also a potential of conducting some interviews, but I'm still working out the logistics and, and everything about that. Has there been any specific sources that you've come across in your research already that you found particularly interesting or important or surprising? Yeah, so in the UN archives, there was, I don't know if you've heard, there, there's a UN bureaucrat called Ralph Bunch, um, and he has lots of his papers at UCLA, um, but there's some duplicate copies of this in the UN. And he was a UN bureaucrat. He was engaged in the first ever peacekeeping mission. He was involved in the Congo crisis. And he writes in his, I found this one document and it, it's titled A Bad Day at the UN. And then he goes on to explain it was just about the bleakest day at the UN since its beginning. And so this to me, when I then see Rhodesia, I'm like, what is this? <laughs> Why is he reflecting that this is the, one of the worst days? And so this uh, this was my source that was like, I then wrote a little bit about for like last year. And um, this kind of reflects a, a well-told moment in Rhodesian UDI history where it's something called the Beira incident. So Beira is a port located in Mozambique. And during the embargo on oil, they were still repeatedly um, receiving oil on ships um, that made its way through the Portuguese colony of Mozambique and then to Rhodesia, so violating the sanctions that were introduced. And so around this time in April 1966, Britain asked for an emergency meeting of the Security Council for UN authorization to use force to stop the ship if necessary. And again, this is just a moment where you have the UK saying, oh, we don't want UN involvement, and then going to the UN and asking for UN involvement. Um, but the, this meeting was actually delayed by two or three days by the Mali president of the Security Council, which really goes against UN protocol. And then you have in this, after this reflection by Ralph Bunch, you have like a, a flurry of letters by delegates, meetings between delegates and the Security Council, press meetings, and kind of is like a, a small crisis within a crisis, let's say. And then then after eventually they have the meeting and, and the, the discussions begin with this was a, a really bad moment in UN history because protocols were broken and et cetera. But this is really interesting because it shows how politically charged this specific moment and issue was at the UN and that it paralysed a lot of UN practices. But it also shows how political influence is yielded in, in various ways that isn't actually often visible. So you have the Mali president doing this and it's not 100% clear of the reasons he was doing this, but there's speculation that it had the support of the African bloc in the UN because they were frustrated with British policy. Um, but it also shows a secretary general who meets with the Mali president and is trying to kind of encourage him to keep uh, in line with UN protocol. So it's really interesting. And, and yeah, so this is one thing that I saw and I was very pleased with because it just shows how many people were involved and the different elements. And it, it kind of enlarges all of the things, the ideas that I had in the first place. And it, and, and it showed that I actually had some feeling that was right. <laughs> yeah, it's always good when a source ratifies yeah. what you've been saying. Yeah. I know you said you're in the early stages of this, but if you do conduct some interviews, what kind of individuals do you hope to speak to and what yeah. do you hope to gain from this sort of oral history work? 
I have the idea of maybe speaking to one or two people on the Rhodesian side and also on the Zimbabwean side that actually went to the UN or had some engagement in the with the UN. I'm more interested in kind of focusing on that fact that if they traveled to the UN or if they had known somebody else who had, I, I want to get their perception of, of how they saw the UN and how they saw it as either benefiting or hindering their independence claims and also other things. And, and I don't know whether I will use it explicitly but I, I would like it to kind of frame my research right so I think this is uh, one thing that has been really yeah really common I think now in, in more histories and I think it's really good because it doesn't separate the reality from the from the academic part so yeah we'll see that sounds good I hope you managed to get something arranged finally another big question how do you feel that your project changes the way we think about your topic in relation to the UN and Rhodesia and British decolonization the biggest thing is really where decolonization can look completely different where you shift your focus and i think it it also there is this argument that decolonization looks a variety of different things but i think sometimes we then we acknowledge that but we don't actually then try and look for other ways of proving that let's say so i think hopefully that this does do that and also what i mentioned before about this uncomfortable aspect of decolonization is benefiting white minorities and also then what's been included in and excluded in UN histories there's a massive aspect of this now in UN histories of decolonization where the unsuccessful de um, independence campaigns are now being looked at and we're asking why why was it included why was it why certain voices are excluded so I think that's where my research really hopes to to fit in and, and to contribute to yeah I guess that's the the question of kind of all these these big political histories or institutional mm. organizations and as you know you don't actually know what has been said sort of yeah. in backdoor rooms and deals done under the table so I think it's really interesting when historians now are trying to kind of you know use all these techniques of reading against the grain and finding the excluded voices to show actually a fuller history rather than what was just documented in the archive yeah, yeah. so I mean yeah right now I I have lots of ideas still and I'm very early stages, but um, yeah, it's it's great that there's always lots of questions and, and lots of sources. So I'm very lucky on, in that respect. That is going to conclude our discussion. Thank you so much for joining us, Siobhan, and I wish you all the best in your future work. Thank you for having me. <laughs>